Welcome to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX, the show about the decisions people make that change everything. My name is Glenn Washington, and life would not be worth living if I didn't have DJ Smooth Grooves rocking the ones and twos. Can't wait for today's show because it is an amazing world. It used to be that whatever life served you, that's what you got. What you didn't like, your nose, your skin, your class, your gender, too damn bad. But times have changed. Nothing is fixed. If you don't like what you see in the mirror, start anew. But are there limits? Are there boundaries that are internal or external? How much can you really change and how much can you demand the universe change for you? Hey. I ask the questions on Snap Judgment for the answers. You got to go to the stories. And I'm going to kick it off with a recollection from a long time ago. My cousin Virgil cheated at Monopoly. Talking about at his house, robbing the bank was allowed if you didn't get caught. He never got caught. He'd have every piece of property mortgage looking all pitiful. And then suddenly, he's sitting there with a pile of $500 bills. I'd be like, man, come on now. And Lisa, Lisa got the madness. Now, uh, you can't do that. Do what? You just can't be stealing from the bank. Please. I stole that three turns back. You late. Mama. Mm-mm. What no aid coming from nobody's mama. Stay downstairs. Five round bed wheels deep in the cards and drinking. Y'all play nice with your cousins now. Ha ha. Whatever. But Lisa. Lisa never could just let something go. Never, ever, never. Especially not when she was winning. On TV, He-Man called upon the powers of Grayskull. Then cut to commercial. Light bright, making things with light. Out of sight, making things look like bright. Light bright, light bright. Oh. A suddenly special sparkly spotlight struck that gleam in Lisa's eye. Locked and loaded. Light bright, making things with light. He's gotta cheat, cause he's looking all white. Light bright. Oh snap! Light bright, light bright! There was no coming back from that one. I was all up in Virgil's face. Light bright! See, my cousin Virgil was light-skinned. Grandma said he was the pretty boy. The neighbors said he was the pretty boy. That's because he was the pretty boy. Good-looking, caramel-colored kid. The girl shouted, Virgil, Virgil. When we walk down the street, Virgil, 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 light bright. The next day, I saw granddaddy had one cigarette left, so I stayed close. It worked like a charm. Hey, 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 boy, boy, take this money and go get your granddaddy your cigarettes. I ran with a quickness because granddaddy let you keep the change. My granddaddy wanted cigarettes, please. Humps are cool. Cool. Man slid the pack in two quarters back to me. Video game. I was about to school these chumps, but they were already playing. And when I was waiting, I saw it. Right on the shelf. A jar, and on the label, a happy, good-looking couple. The man sported a tie and a suit coat. The woman had long, straight hair. They were going somewhere. Fancy. The label read, Skin lightning cream. What? I had never heard of such a thing. It promised to provide the complexion I deserved. I deserved. I deserved. It didn't even feel like I stole the jar. I just, I just, I just didn't let go of it when I walked out of the store and down the street and in the house and up the stairs to my grandmama's bathroom. I set it down in the sink in front of the mirror. Skin lightning? Now, I had to be careful because 
Somebody's uncle, cousin, neighbor was always jacking the boxing up, surprised, not too much time. But there was that cool brother, that cool, cool brother on the label, sporting that tie, that wavy hair, cafe ole skin, beautiful lady all staring at him. It said to rub a thin layer on the target area. For real? The jar smelled like a chemical factory, but I figured it had to because it was a big task turning somebody light-skinned. Then it struck me. It wasn't just my face. I needed work on my legs, my arms, my neck, my hands. I had to get this right or my cousins would never stop. The teasing would never ever stop. And what was this gonna do to my lips? But look at that smooth brother on the jaw. His lips were fine. Now, now I couldn't worry about all that right now. Just one step at a time, one step at a time that it was gonna be all about pretty boy me. I opened the jar. Double, double, toil and trouble. My eyes teared from the fumes. I stuck my finger in the paste. They stung a hot, angry, acid burn, but no pain, no gain. I steeled myself. I held a glowing gob against my naked face and then, and, and then, and then I smeared the concoction into my skin. It hurt. Brandon Iron Bad. Boy! Boy, what you doing up and down? Grandma, think fast. Reading. I'm just reading a book. Oh, that's my smartest, smart grandbaby. Smartest, smart. You keep reading them books now. Smart. I looked at myself in the mirror, a smear of chemical fire burning my face. Smart, smart. I pushed my head under the faucet and attacked it with soap. It took three months, three months for the burn to fade when anybody asked me about the scar. I told them that I knocked my head against some books. This is Snap Judgment. My brother would always tell me that he wrote Lean On Me, and I believed it. You know, now I might have a problem. So I would tell him songs that I wrote, which I really did write. At 15, I came out as a lesbian. Then when I was probably about 20 years old, I was just like, yeah, but why, why don't I have sideburns? You know, why don't I have facial hair? So this is me before testosterone. Walking around trying to live your life Everything's normal and everything's right Doesn't matter if it's dark or light And everything does There was like a good solid three years where every single day of my life I wondered whether or not I should take testosterone. At the time, I thought, well, I'm a singer, so that's never going to happen. Like, I was so attached to my voice being the way it was. And I had put so much into my singing voice for my whole life. So... The idea of taking testosterone and my voice suddenly changing, not knowing what would happen, was just not, it was, it was out of the question. Do I do this for you? Do I do it for me? I suppose you're a mirror and I guess I will see. There were two reasons I think that I was super passionate about my music. I'm happiest when I'm recording or on stage. 
and I decided not to go to college. I was like, no, I'm going to be a musician. But then there became this urgency. This is all you got now, so you have to succeed with music and making it big. This is all I am. This is all I got. Like, that was how it felt. Those two things just kept me hemming and hawing for three years. It got to the point where I did some work around my own personal identity and letting go of our attachments and our identities, knowing that nothing is permanent. And I just got to open up and, and see that I'm not just a singer. I'm a being who loves to sing. I've always told people who say, God, I wish I could sing. Look at Bob Dylan. Look at Tom Petty, Tom Waits. Probably no one ever said to them, Bob Dylan, man, your voice is so pretty, you should sing. I had to put my money where my mouth was. I decided to go ahead and transition. I'm not afraid to go. I understand it was going to be a whole new instrument that I had to learn, but I was going to sing no matter what, even if I sounded like a frog, which I knew I would for a period because there's that whole puberty voice thing that happens as soon as you start taking testosterone. I called it the Peter Brady experiment. There's an episode of the Brady Bunch where they start a band, and while they're recording their album, Peter Brady's voice starts to change. Marsha? I'm not Marsha. No, I'm not Jan either. I'm Peter. And it's cracking every time they're singing, and so initially they freak out about it, and then they decide to incorporate it in the song, and the song becomes this hit. Every boy's a man inside, a girl's a woman too. And if you want to reach your destiny, here's what you've got to do. When it's time to change, then it's time to change. Don't fight the time, come along for the ride, don't you see? It was awkward. I would perform, and I wouldn't know, like, am I going to be able to hit this note tonight? Oftentimes it was a no. <laughs> On some nights I'd be like, ugh. It was this whole kind of awkward teenage stage. I'm your boy and you don't even know it. I did feel I did feel very insecure. Sometimes I was just like, I feel like such a goof. I can't believe I'm talking right now. Hormones change everything. And for example, before testosterone, I was a crier. Anything, I'd cry at commercials or whatever, Hallmark cards, you name it. And then shortly after starting taking testosterone, sometimes I would I would notice that my jaw was twitching or something, or my eye was twitching, and I'd be like, oh, I'm having an emotion. <laughs> Crying all the time. There was something about being this Butch Dyke singer that was like kind of glorified. It was cool, you know, it was different. Being a male singer, I'm just gonna be some dude. And there's lots of some dudes. How long does it take a voice to change? Well, it's, it's hard to say. So I've been on testosterone since 2005. My voice is still changing. It started to settle probably after a year and a half or so. Then as time goes on, my voice opens. And so I'm hitting my low notes that I love. Those are all new and I can feel my chest kind of like resonate. But now I can hit kind of in the lower end of where I was singing before. When I talk to people, they say, oh yeah, I still hear you. You're still you. Your voice is just lower. Just like my identity isn't just that I'm trans. I'm a whole person who has a transgender experience and who has the experience of being a musician. And both of these things I love about myself and both of these things have had to shift and I've had to shift around them. But my passion for music has stayed with me. You can't heal me, you know I'm not afraid to go Can't you see that this is Not the end of me in their time I'm not afraid to die Yes, there are times I'm not afraid That piece was produced by Snap Judgment's own Stephanie Fu. Storm performs throughout the San Francisco Bay Area and has an album out called Long Lost Sun. We'll have a link on the snapjudgment.org website. Today on Snap Judgment, plasticity. Stories about our identities being molded and shaped and reformed to suit our will. The coming up after the break. Reality TV changes someone against her will. Really? Can you even imagine such a thing is possible? It's only 60 seconds away. I'm Glenn Washington, 
And this is Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. Stay tuned. to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, in beautiful, sunny, downtown Oakland, California. And today, we're featuring stories of human plasticity, making the outside match the inside or match some image of what you think things should be. And that's all fine and good when you know what you're changing. Of course, We always imagine the core of who we are stays the same no matter what, immutable, solid, that inner glow. That can't be plastic. That's a rock. But then our own Rebecca Hertz tested that theory out. I was offered a job as a segment producer on a brand new reality TV show. This show, I was told, was going to document triumphant personal transformation of the most noble kind. We were going to take women who had no self-esteem, no hope, no possibility of changing their own lives on their own, and help them out. A metamorphosis was going to take place from caterpillars into butterflies. I took the job. The show was indeed all about transformation. I would soon learn that it was possible to completely transform bodies and faces with knives and chisels. But what I had not expected, what wasn't in my start paperwork or on any of the time cards I filled out every week, was that I would be transformed as well. Only I wasn't going to get any prettier. I am Philip Zimbardo. I am a professor of psychology at Stanford University. In 1971, Dr. Philip Zimbardo began an experiment that would lead him to a theory of how normal people can transform into evil people and do evil things. It was called the Stanford Stanford Prison Prison Experiment. Experiment. We had designed it to go two full weeks, uh, and we ended it in six days. Which was long enough for some of the participants, who played prisoners, to have total mental breakdowns. Emotional breakdowns. And long enough for some of the other participants who played guards to engage in physical and verbal aggression, psychological abuse. Torture. And Dr. Zimbardo, the lead researcher, was also deeply affected. He lost his sense of right and wrong. A knowledgeable, aware, sophisticated researcher, Phil Zimbardo, was transformed in five days to be a relatively inhumane, prison superintendent who could see suffering and not label it as suffering. And I know this firsthand because on the set of that reality show, it happened to me. At the start of every episode, a group of experts sits around and watches animations of nearly naked, ugly women as their bodies spin 360 degrees. The experts talk in detail about what can be done to make these ugly women pretty. Nose job. The animation freezes. An arrow points to the woman's unsightly nose. Facelift. Another arrow, this time on her forehead. She needs to lose about 25 pounds. A circle highlights her thighs. Full set of dental veneers. Tummy tuck. I'm at the surgeon's office in Beverly Hills. The caterpillar comes in. She's from the Pacific Northwest. I've already filmed her background package, met her husband, heard every detail of how much she dislikes her life. 
and herself. She's in a hospital gown. And then the surgeon comes in. His hair is slick and he wears this European watch that makes this heavy clinking sound as he moves his purple pen over the caterpillar's face and body. So demonization is one of the most central processes of evil because it allows you simply to think of other people as objects. Uh, doctor, can you explain to us what you're doing right now? I'm marking her nose, her cheeks, her brow line. At some point, they cease to be human. And I'm marking these areas on the body where I'll be doing liposculpture. We're going to get rid of these saddlebags. How do you feel right now? This is an on-the-fly interview I did with the Caterpillar. Um, so excited? Could you remember to include my question in your answer, please? Oh, right, sorry. I'm so excited right now. She gets up, walks into surgery. Then we take lunch orders. California Pizza Kitchen. I get a salad. The surgeon tells me that he and his nurses are all going to eat sushi in the surgery room later, so not to worry about them. My phone rings. It's the supervising producer. Wants to know how it's going. It's fine, I tell her. The caterpillar's just going under. And then I have to get off the phone really quickly because I'm starting to gag. What is that smell? It's awful. Oh, the surgeon is using a cauterizing knife, so... As it cuts, it burns the skin and hair. It fills the whole surgery room with this sharp, revolting smell. I watch my first breast augmentation. The surgery table is completely upright, and the caterpillar is just strapped there, with her face covered by a cloth. They cut off the nipples and pry the pectoral muscles off the body. Then they stick a saline sack in there with a tube hanging off of it, then pump saline in. I can see the breast getting larger and larger as the doctor pumps. He's listening to Aerosmith. What do you think? He asks the room. Good size? You could go bigger, one of the nurses says. The doctor reaches out and cups the breast with a gloved hand. Yeah, he answers. We could go bigger. Our lunch arrives, but I find it difficult to eat. No one else seems to have a problem. After the surgery, we shoot when she's wheeled out. It's evening. The doctor explains the pain pump to her for her tummy tuck. There's a wound across her entire pubic line and a scar where her new fake belly button is. And once the drugs wear off, she's going to be in horrible pain. He presses a plastic bulb attached to a tube into her hand. She's barely conscious. She's covered in bandages. And her bandaged head kind of rolls around on her neck. When you're in pain... The doctor explains. Just squeeze the bulb. Do you understand? She kind of groans. The bulb will deliver a local anesthetic right to the wound. She groans again, but it's muffled by all the bandages. The doctor can only do the post-op at six in the morning. I show up. I'm in Beverly Hills again. I have to shoot because there's no one else to do it, so I put up a light and roll the camera. The caterpillar's face looks like nothing I've ever seen before. Her lips are enormous and purple. There's bruising under her eyes, her face is swollen, and she's unrecognizable as human. We are social creatures. It's a basic need to belong, but many groups lead us astray. I'm in the office, and all the producers, who are all women are standing around talking. Everyone looks really tired. No wonder it's day 17 with no day off. One of them says, The surgeon told me that if I just shave this bump down on my nose, it would transform my whole face. Chin lipo, someone else says. See this? She pats the underside of her chin with the back of her hand. See? They're all nodding. They all understand. A PA comes in with a crate. It's a shipment of diet food, someone says. I'm starting my diet right now. The group disperses quickly, following the boxes of low-calorie, non-fat chocolate bars. An email comes in from the co-executive producer. Can someone make a weight spreadsheet? We need to track their weight every day. One of the other producers starts to generate a bi-weekly email. It's the weight chart. 
detailing every ounce that each caterpillar has gained or lost since the last weigh-in. The co-executive producer responds, Someone gained six ounces? Someone writes back, It's the carrots. She's eating them because she's hungry, but she's eating too many. Carrots actually have a lot of sugar. The command comes in, No more carrots. A lot of evil exists not because of what we do, but because of what we don't do. This is the evil of inaction. I'm on the grounds of the apartment complex, where all the caterpillars are staying. It's day 27, no day off. I'm supposed to be there for interviews, but I have to bring a camera into a room for an emergency. I start shooting. This one caterpillar, she's in horrible pain. Something's gone awry, and I have to get a doctor on the phone. He did lipo on her inner thighs, and her labia has now swollen to the size of two grapefruits. The doctor finally calls back. Totally normal, he says. The swelling will go down on its own. Just give her some Vicodin. Okay, I tell him. We'll do. After the surgeries, we spend a week shooting the panel of experts sitting around and talking about the before pictures of the caterpillars. Everybody points out what's wrong with them. Cellulite. Stretch marks. Saggy boobs. Circles under the eyes. Small chins. Overbites. No cheekbones. Large nostrils. Thin lips. I'm there to make sure that we're hitting everybody's story points. We forgot to talk about her loose stomach. She needs a tummy tuck, I tell them. And, oh, that, that one caterpillar, she, she, um, she had that big mole on her nose. Cognitive dissonance is what happens when there is a discrepancy or conflict between behavior and values. We do or say something which goes against our beliefs. How do people resolve the dissonance? And what happens is behavior wins. That is, you change your attitudes, your values to fit the behavior. That's who you become. On day 32, I finally have a day off. Undressed, I turn slowly around in the mirror to see a 360-degree view of myself. My mind provides the animated arrows and lines and circles highlighting everything that's wrong. Buckle pads, skin creases, tired bags under my eyes, saddlebags, inner thighs, loose arms. Who is this person staring back at me? It's a Saturday night. That's when the head of alternative programming for the network decides he has time to watch the first cut of the first episode. We head upstairs to the screening room. All the big shots are there, waiting for the biggest shot to arrive. Blind obedience to authority is is critical also because all of our training as children is in fact to be blindly obedient to authority. The problem is not all authority deserves our respect. He finally arrives and sits down. The lights go down. The show starts. There's slow music, a lot of violins. It's emotional, slow pace. There are a lot of long dissolves between shots, a lot of crying. It chronicles each woman's journey. The head of alternative programming for the network starts talking immediately, and I take copious notes. He hates it. It's so boring. He says, we don't do documentary, people. There needs to be something dramatic. Something something dramatic has to happen. Come on, it's got to be a competition, he says. Otherwise, no one's going to watch this. Oh, everyone in the room says, oh, competition. Right, right. It's got to be a competition. So the whole office comes in the next day, Sunday, and we start recutting the entire thing. So... It can become a competition to see who's the prettiest girl at the end and who's going to make it to the butterfly pageant. Later that week, I'm supervising one of the editors and I have to leave the edit bay because I feel so sick. It's like I can smell that cauterizing knife again, except this time it's not the caterpillar's flesh that we're cutting. It's their very experience. I see my boss outside, and I tell her, this is just wrong. This isn't what happened. 
there wasn't a competition. She looks at me like, like I'm crazy. We're out on the curb. It's March in Los Angeles, and it's 85 degrees. And the sunshine is like this blast furnace. Don't be so dramatic, Rebecca, she says. It's just TV. She's right. In the end, it was just a trashy, silly show that got astronomically high ratings because, and only because, it was such a disturbing train wreck to watch. There was something wrong with me because I couldn't deal with it. My friend who works on another show, he tells me, there are no victims in reality TV. Only volunteers. We can rationalize and justify anything. So after the fact, we come up with good reasons why we had to do it, why it made sense to do it, and, and I was, I was doing, actually doing a good thing. It's years later, and when I talk to my old boss about it now, she remembers the show as something she did that changed women's lives for the better. We gave that woman teeth, she always says. She didn't have teeth, and we bought them for her. Despite the teeth, I can't quite share my boss's perspective. And when I look back on my role in Stanford Prison Study, to this day, I still feel guilty. I mean, you should have ended it when the second prisoner broke down. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm laughing because I have a, I'm, it's a laugh of recognition. That story comes from Snap Judgment's own Rebecca Hertz. I'm Will Washington, and you're listening to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. Keep on keeping on. to Snap Judgment from NPR and PRX. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and today we explore the plastic nature of our bodies and identities. Sometimes the struggle is not about changing from one thing to another. It's a struggle of never knowing quite who you are. Hopefully, you've never been to that place where you know in your soul that your mind and body are out of step with each other. A little knowledge goes a long way. Our own Stephanie Fu has Sarah's story. Aphrodite was a blonde. The ideal woman was, in the summer of 76, tanned with gleaming white teeth and flipped out hair. She was an angel. The Farrah Fawcett picture in the red bathing suit was the poster that all the boys had. She was the female icon. I would study that poster of her. I knew that this was a female and that I wasn't that. Nobody could mistake Sarah for a goddess. She was 16, and she was still flat-chested. No hips, no butt, no period. I would stuff athletic socks in a bra that was too big for me. And then one day in basketball practice, on the other end of the court, I saw a sock. The girls saw it. They called me Tank. The next day, one of the girls said, Susie, have you got a tissue? 
tank. Do you have a tissue? No, I don't have any tissues. Check your bra tank. Horrified. 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 But that wasn't the end of it. Things got worse as Sarah got taller and taller, six foot three, and fitting in became impossible. I looked more like I belonged on the defensive line of the high school football team. When she was 16, Sarah's parents finally became concerned about her lack of development, and they took her to see some doctors. They said that I'm genetically female. But Sarah had gonadal dysgenesis. Instead of ovaries, she had gonadal streaks, lumps of undeveloped tissue inside her that would become cancerous. They scheduled a surgery to remove the lumps and to see whether she had female sexual organs or whether they'd have to construct them within her. I was so ashamed that something about my gender and my genitalia was wrong. The last thing she hoped when they put her to sleep was that she would wake up normal. And the first thing my mom whispered into my ear was, you're a girl and you don't have to have any more surgeries. And her father came up and told her, you're all girl, you're 100% girl. She went on estrogen and developed breasts, but her body never looked quite like the other girls. She realized that she would never be a regular woman, and she was afraid that because of that, nobody would ever love her. I felt like that was God saying, you thought maybe you could escape and actually have a life and have children and be normal? No way, honey. I will squash you like a bug anytime you think you're going to have any happiness. But then came David. I very briefly was singing with a band, and David was friends with some of the bandmates. I was singing me and Bobby McGee, Janis Joplin, and there weren't enough microphones, and I offered to share my microphone with this cute guy. He put his hand around my hip, I put my hand around his hip, and we swayed to the music, and David and I just talked and talked. It didn't matter what he was saying, I thought he was hot. At first, Sarah couldn't believe he was really into her. And I kept wondering, he doesn't seem to notice that I'm big, he doesn't seem to notice that I'm overweight, he just seems to really like me. He is either so highly evolved that he's not seeing the imperfections of the packaging, or he's a liar. And so we're in Sausalito, and we're hugging and kissing in the street, and some construction workers yell, get a room, fellas. I was mortified, because I thought now David's going to really notice how different I look, and... He just turned and laughed and said, you think she's a guy? You're idiots. David made Sarah feel like a woman. Well, a loud, brash, unladylike interpretation of a woman anyway. He made her feel like herself. And so, two years later, she's the one who proposed. I had a pendant made that had, will you marry me, David, written on one side. I got down on one knee in the hot tub and gave him the necklace. And he just said, yes, of course. Sarah and David found a priest, drove to Santa Cruz, and on a grassy knoll by the sea, they eloped. And they lived in wedded bliss for almost two decades. Last year, 19 years into their marriage, Sarah happened to be surfing the web. She'd always accepted the doctor's diagnosis, but she was curious and decided to Google her condition. And that's when she discovered something called Swire Syndrome. Remember when Sarah's father told her that she was a 100% girl? Well, he wasn't telling 100% of the truth. Though Sarah's body is physically female, she has XY chromosomes. Male chromosomes. After they diagnosed her, the doctors approached her father and said, if you want, we can make her a three-inch penis. Obviously, he turned them down, but nobody ever asked Sarah. Here I am, genetically male. And I had never thought until last year, I had never even considered the idea that I hadn't been told the complete truth. I thought I knew it all, my whole story. This explained everything. The reason why Sarah never felt like a woman is that she never was one. She wasn't a female with tomboyish traits. She is genetically male with female traits. I identify as an intersex human being. I live in this middle ground, and this middle ground ain't a bad place to be. This new person is still Sarah. She was happy with the person she'd cultivated over the past 20 years. Sarah could never have been an angel, but hermaphroditus was a god. 
But how would David react to Sarah's new identity? What would you do if your wife of twenty years came out to you as genetically male? My wife is named Sarah. She's tall, strong, beautiful. She's got breasts. She's got genitalia. She's female, and that's just the way I treat it. It's that simple for me. And it, when it last, when all this came up last year, my take on it was, okay, so now you know a little more details than you did before, but it doesn't change who you are. It couldn't. Feeling good was good enough for me. Good enough for me and Bobby McGee. If I had been an emotionally capable 17-year-old, I might have opted to go the male direction. I think I might have opted to keep my genitalia just as it is now, take testosterone, have a beard, and someone out there will love me. And I think David would have. If David, if David had come along in 1988 and found that Sarah living as Sam, David would have fallen in love with that person. Do you really think that? You know, I'd like to think so, and I, I gotta tell you, ain't nobody ever gonna know. Sarah and David. Just renewed their vows on the same knoll in Santa Cruz where they eloped 20 years ago. This time, their friends and family were there to witness the vows. You see, we can have happy endings on Snap Judgment. We can. See, say, puede. But first, first, I'm gonna get a little tissue. I think I've got a got a little water in my eye or something. But just you wait right there. I've got a little plastic story to tell you of my own. Can't touch me. To understand this story, you've got to go back, way back, to when God decided He'd had enough of the foolishness and the sinning and the total and complete lack of respect. Enough. He was going to send a flood to wipe everybody out. He only told. One man about his plans, Noah. And you may know all about Noah's ark, and how Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives sailed around for a year with all the world's animals before alighting to repopulate the earth. But what you might not know are the racial implications of their journey. At least. The racial implications, according to the cult church I was raised in. See, first you got to understand that by divine providence, Noah was a descendant of Adam's pure white seed. As was his wife, as were his three boys. They were as white as white could be. They were O W F, original white folk. But the foundation was rocky, right from the beginning. Only one. Of these sons obeyed God's will by marrying a good white woman. Two of the sons had unrighteous lust in their heart and chose to marry from outside their holy white racial lineage. So there's Noah, three white sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem marries white, good boy, but Ham marries black, and Japheth marries Asian. They all get on the ark to escape the terrible flood. When they get off, God says, "No more racial mixing nonsense." The Lord erects boundaries to prevent any more mixing from ever occurring. And if anyone does mix it up, it's a high and terrible sin. Okay, so you might be thinking to yourself, "What does this ancient tale?" Of God's wrath have to do with teenage love. I'll explain, but please understand, I cannot make this up. But I must change the names to protect the innocent. The girl, we'll call her Juliet. Lovely, lovely, beautiful. We grew up together. She was innocent, chaste. We were friends, only friends, but we were just children. Children grow. 
and she grew and I grew and we grew closer. We talked on the phone. We talked on the phone. Don't let your kids talk on the phone. And suddenly, this friendship between us that had been cultivated for so long, for years, was not to be tolerated any further. See, Juliet was white. I'm black. This was not to be. The pastor told us that God had forbidden such unnatural relationships in the time of Noah. Thing is, they were right to worry. Because I had lust in my heart, and rumor was Juliet had lust in her heart, too. If only she would say the word. I knew our love could rip these walls asunder. Fight with me, Juliet. Fight for us, deacons, ministers, apostles. I would fight God to save us. But she wouldn't breathe the word. I burned. I shared my torment with the only person who had it even worse than I did, one of my dearest friends, Quan. Good looking, great basketball player, funny, everybody liked Quan, but Quan's folk came from Korea. And if blacks had it bad, Asians had it really bad. There were virtually zero Asians in our cult living in North America. Quan complained that he was going to have to get a passport just to go on his first date. He told me not to sweat Juliet. There was, after all, a real-life black cult girl that lived only half the state away in Lansing, Michigan. True, we hated each other, but she had the right skin tone, yo! Turns out, she had options. See, if you are of mixed heritage, you could apply for racial reclassification you had to send a picture of yourself to Pasadena, California for examination by our Council of Elders. There, they would perform the rigorous and very secret background analysis known as the look-see test. In other words, they would look and see to which racial category you belong. If reclassification was called for, then you would renounce your previous race and step away forever, never to return. This girl, the only black girl for hundreds of miles applied for such reclassification and it was granted. So now, now even the black girl was white. Quan thought that was funny, ha! Everybody's mixed, man. I'm gonna apply for racial reclassification. He was talking about good. It was our own little protest. I took the picture. Say cheese, Quan. Three months later, Quan got a package in the mail. Dude, you are not gonna believe this. What? I'm officially white. We laughed ourselves silly, but it was true. The Council of Elders determined that from that date forward, Quan had all the privileges and responsibilities of a full-fledged white person. Hilarious. Later the same day, I received my daily call from Juliet. Glenn, there's something we need to discuss. Finally, we needed to get all this smoldering out in the open and talk about how we were ready to fight for our love. Yeah, well, I just thought you should know, given how close we've become. Uh huh. You know that. If the rules were different, then what? I just want you to know that someone asked me to prom. And I said, yeah. Who? I mean, I mean, who? Quan. It was as if Noah's three sons each took a piece of the ark and stabbed me in the heart. Quan! Quan, well, well, we can't kick it because I'm black, and you're going with Quan, and he's... Oh. What? The minute I hung up, Quan called. I just want you to know I asked Juliet to the prom. I heard, Judas. Dude, I thought one of us should take her. I'll tell you everything that happens. It'll be just like you were there. Oh, please. Please tell me everything that happened. 
he called after prom. You want to know what happened? I didn't want to know. 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 I did not want to know. No. No. No, I don't want to know. I took the picture I had of Juliet, pre-digital, pre-Photoshop. This was old school. I got a pencil and shaded her face. I sent it to the Council of Elders in Pasadena, California, and told them they better look-see this girl quick. She was obviously black. They'd have to be crazy not to see it. Crazy. I don't know if they looked, but I know they didn't see. Snap Judgment was produced by me, but never alone, never, ever alone. As for myself, I do not cross a street without uber-duber producer Mark Ristich. Now, this episode particularly bears the fingerprints of the god of war and radio, Roman Mars. Are you listless? Are you, are you jumpy, suddenly afraid of, of gym clothes? We've seen this before. Best to get you some Rebecca Megahertz before it's too late. I want to thank own Stephanie Fu and Rita Daniels. Go ahead with yourself, DJ Ben, to the Ricky Ricky Smooth Grooves, Picasso, Christian Pollock, and the man behind the scenes that makes stuff go, Will Urbina. We are inspired by Youth Speaks because the next generation can speak for itself. YouthSpeaks.org. If you happen to see the Corporation for Public Broadcasting all dirty and tired after a hard day's work, please take a bristle brush and some soapy water. Give them a good scrubbing. Tell them it's from their friends at Snap Judgment Radio. Much love and many thanks. The Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media because somebody has to. PRX.org. And you may have noticed that while this is certainly not the news, in fact, you could go on a completely sugar-free diet, drive all your coworkers crazy, blabbing about how it is all the time, getting all slim and trim, but end up getting hit by a bus anyway, and still, you would not be as far away from the news as this is. This is NPR. NPR.